Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek. In the random access file this week, an underground group with contacts inside Apple has been distributing the source code for the Apple Macintosh. The group, calling itself Software Artists for Information Dissemination, has mailed out floppy disks containing portions of the Mac code to several industry insiders. The group says its aim is to spread the genius of Apple developers uninhibited by legalities. The group says it will distribute the complete source code to the Mac filing system, as well as the codes for the computer's memory and system's software. Apple has never licensed its source code to anyone. Clone makers or individual hackers could use the source code to clone their own low-cost Macs. Apple says it is investigating and will prosecute to the fullest extent of the law. Macworld, November 1989. The Iconoclast by Stephen Levy. The Dirt on Apple Security. Fighting loose lips, missing code, and probing garbologists. Apple's legendary 1984 commercial ran only once on network television. The exit line on this bit of advertising history, in case you somehow forgot, went like this. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Well, roll over, George Orwell. There's a new Apple advertising campaign, and it's not directed at prospective computer buyers. It's aimed at the people who design, manufacture, sell, and support Macintoshes, Apple's employees. Its goal is to generate a corporate wartime consciousness within the previously mellow Apple culture. It's a lot like what Michael and Elliot, those yuppie admeisters of 30-something, would have come up with if asked to design a campaign for the KGB. The campaign is witty, at least judging by the photos in the internally distributed newspaper devoted to the Apple Information Protection Program, IPP. There's a picture of John Scully, his grinning head sticking out of a pile of spaghetti documents. John rips new organization to shreds. It says, making light of Scully's hobby of reshuffling Apple's hierarchy as often as a blackjack dealer mixes the deck. In small print, it urges Appleniks to, quote, use shredders and confidential bins. Then there's lame duck executive Del Yoakum sitting with a knife and fork and a gag around his face. In another layout, one of Apple's first employees, Chris Espinoza, is pictured holding his hands over the ears of his mother, fellow Apple worker Sue Espinoza. There are some things even your mother shouldn't know, it says, adding that even pillow talk with significant others should be discreet. And most impressively, there is Jean-Louis Gasset, decked out in punk sunglasses and a black leather jacket, pointing at a circuit diagram stamped Confidential. The legend under the picture attempts to explain the baffling distinctions between Apple's various levels of confidential information. More ominously, there is also a full-page spread covered by the bold-faced names of more than 100 employees who have volunteered to be information protection coordinators. Every department should have one, says the message underneath the names. Presumably, these ambassadors to the IPP are to aid fellow workers in keeping the secrets. Quote, there are a thousand things an Apple employee can do. Ten examples are given. They include instructions not to speak to journalists without specific authorization, 
to get passwords installed on computers and voicemail, and to accost, quote, unfamiliar people who are lingering in your area, in case they may be, well, who knows who they may be. You get the idea. Life During Wartime the Information Protection Program might appear to be a sign that Apple Computer is getting somewhat paranoid, or at least tense in the buttocks, at the onset of its middle age. But consider its opposition, the emergence of something called the New Prometheus League, which has borrowed its name from that Greek dude who brought us fire. In this case, Program listings and comments for the Macintosh ROMs have been distributed to the press, perhaps in hopes that the liberated information might inspire others to make great products that Apple may no longer be planning. The first salvo was bona fide source code for color quick draw, if not the crown jewels, a close approximation. It was a guerrilla action, presumably against Apple's increasing regimentation and information hoarding practices. As one ideological ally of the new Prometheus bunch put it to me, this is a battle between, quote, the morons running around in suspenders, who make up Apple management, and, quote, the guys they keep in closets, who actually design the products and make up the real heart of Apple Computer. Seen in this light, the Information Protection Program is more than your normal loose lips sink ships propaganda campaign. It is management's attempt to retain the hearts and minds of its employees during an era in which Apple can no longer rightfully claim to be a little guy, but is an unmistakable giant, matching its technical efforts with vigorous legal machinations designed to intimidate fellow giants and squash little guys who might one day impinge on Apple turf. Apple's director of corporate security is a former FBI operative named Ken Moore. Until a few years ago, he headed security for United Airlines, where the worst-case scenarios he worked with included murderous terrorist attacks. His worries are now not as dire, but no less challenging. He must turn around a corporate culture in which keeping secrets, shredding papers, and other security measures are regarded lightly. To date, the unofficial theme song of Apple has been Yakety Yak, but despite Apple's reputation as the sieve of Silicon Valley, there used to be a saying at Apple, isn't it funny a ship that leaks from the top? <laughs> so, uh... The company managed to become one of the biggest success stories in American history. It can even be argued that Apple's openness has been an integral part of its success. Apple, after all, has benefited mightily from a freewheeling flow of information within the company and its developer community. If Moore's efforts overly inhibit that, the net result will be stagnation. Something beneficial will have been lost, and though it won't be easily identified on a financial accounting, its long-term effects would be decidedly negative for both the company and its customers. Moore says that he respects Apple's culture and wants to work within it. We want to change behavior without stifling creativity. He claims that the IPP has engendered little resistance at Apple. To the contrary, he says people have asked, what took you so long? The new Prometheus caper may have helped Moore's quest for acceptance. Apple culture is a feeling of family, he says. If a leak occurs in a newspaper or anything else, there's a reaction of anger, 
It's hurting your buddies. Devil in the Dumpster Strangely, even some of the most strident critics of Apple's increasing conservatism agree with Ken Moore. Which brings us to Chuck Farnham, perhaps the premier representative of a group of career gadflies who buzz around Apple seemingly to bedevil the company by spiriting its secrets out into the public domain. In Farnham's own words, he's an ally of Apple, quote, just a guy who likes the machine. Yet he seems to take particular pride in the fact that many people at Apple hold him in greater disregard than stinging insects or food poisoning. One of Chuck's hobbies is garbology, which he practices in various dumpsters outside of Apple buildings. He is not squeamish about getting his hands dirty in the cause of obtaining information that Apple holds dear. It was Farnham, for instance, who pulled off what he calls the four blind mice caper, smuggling and distributing the documentation for Apple's laptop computer months before its release. A follow-up work in progress is a documentary about breaching Apple security. I'm told it includes some really nifty dumpster shots. Farnham reminds me of the cyberpunk-style hackers who break into protected computer systems and then complain that it wasn't challenging enough. It offends them that even stupid people can do it. I would like to see it be not as easy as it is to get information out of the company, he says. It's ridiculously easy. For instance, eight months before HyperCard came out, I got 10 megabytes of development code for the program from a secretary's hard disk drive. When she got a new Mac SE, she sold the drive, forgetting to erase the contents, and someone outside the company bought it. Within five days, the drive was in my house. Other things that bother Farnham include the fact that he has purchased Apple security badges at a flea market for a buck apiece, and that he often visits supposedly secure Apple sites without having his bags checked. After talking to Farnham, the suggestions in the IPP newspaper to erase all disks after use and shred all papers no longer sound slightly threatening and borderline paranoid. There are bogeymen out there. Farnham himself supports the Information Protection Program. There should be security education for Apple employees, he says. But obviously, Ken Moore's problems go beyond education. He is eager to stop the Chuck Farnhams, and especially the new Prometheans. But how far should he go to root out all evil? Security mania at Apple is in full swing. Cupertino checkpoints are guarded more diligently than at any time in Apple history. Employees are encouraged to utter but two words to inquiring journalists, no comment, even on the most innocuous of queries before referring them to the public relations department. Informal communication between various departments of Apple, formerly a wellspring of creative ideas, is limited to situations of need-to-know. Hugo Fines, founding member of the iPhone team, speaking at the Computer History Museum. In the hardware team, we didn't really know. We knew it was multi-touch, but like, I, the first time I saw pinch-to-zoom was at the keynote. I didn't get to see it before then. <laughs> it's like, need-to-know. Does the yeah. touch screen work? Yes, we get touch events. Okay, you're, you're done. Um, <laughs> And the idea that a large number of employees are encouraged to report on the activities of others has engendered a black sort of humor 
in which the company is referred to as Little China. The danger of an information protection program, in concert with these other measures, is that Apple's reputation will change from that of an irreverent, freewheeling company to that of a cautious giant, and the best and brightest will no longer want to work there. The Ramsey File of course, the Information Protection Program really doesn't deal with the issue of what happens when employees knowingly leak information. In some cases, the leaks come from top executives. Hi, I'm Steve, and welcome to my weekly podcast, Super Secret Apple Rumors. <laughs> Featuring the hot... I got this all timed out. You gotta let me do this here. <laughs> Hi. I'm Steve, and welcome to my weekly podcast, Super Secret Apple Rumors, featuring the hottest rumors about our favorite company. I have some pretty good sources inside Apple, and this is what I'm hearing. The next iPod will be huge, an eight-pounder with a 10-inch screen. Also, Apple's working with other companies to get iPods everywhere. Well, that's all for today. See you next week. In others, like New Prometheus, there's that pesky ideological component. The perpetrators probably think that in some weird way, releasing confidential data is helping Apple. That's a rough one to fight, Ken Moore admitted, before the vigilant public relations operative monitoring our phone conversation shut down that line of questioning. Moore would not comment further on the search for the new Prometheans, nor would he comment on the case of David Ramsey. This is a shame, because the Ramsey case is the most distressing signal yet that security mania at Apple may prove destructive to the firm. Ramsey is a programmer best known for his work on MacPaint 2.0, who toiled for an Apple system software group. But he was well known in the Macintosh community as someone who devoted endless hours of his own time to the Mac user group on CompuServe. To many, he was the only person at Apple available to answer questions about the products on which they spent their money. One day, in a scene out of Franz Kafka, Ramsey was called on the carpet for some remarks he made in a CompuServe message. Apparently, the comment dealt with an unannounced Apple product. I had been watching myself, says Ramsey. I thought I was on safe ground with the comment. It was information that an Apple executive had already said publicly. Ramsey said that after he admitted making the comment, Apple suspended him from work for two weeks. At the end of that time, his employment was terminated. He does not know precisely who at Apple ordered the firing. Ramsey is still loyal to Apple and hopes to return there one day. He has agreed not to repeat whatever comment it was that got him fired so precipitously. Some of Ramsey's supporters have reacted with outrage, vowing never to buy Apple products if they can avoid it. Ramsey himself shrugs off the more extreme responses. He speculates that the reason he lost his job was simply bad timing. It seems Apple made an example of David Ramsey. Is the Ramsey firing an aberration, or is it the dark side of those funny pictures in the Information Protection Program newspaper? Friends of Apple, myself included, fervently hope the former. Otherwise, we await the resurrection of George Orwell 
to document the next chapter of the history of Apple Computer. The following quotes are taken from Michael Tsai's blog. They suggest that extreme secrecy is behind my biggest Apple pet peeve, the declining quality, polish, and simplicity of macOS X over the last decade. Quote, I am awed by the fact that we managed to release any software at all, let alone functional software. When I worked there under Steve Jobs, the macOS organization, then under Bertrand Serlet, it was sort of open amongst the organization itself. It was really easy to walk to someone's office and strike up an interesting conversation. Many late nights were spent working through collaborative problems. Or, randomly, I had a friend who would pop by my office and spend hours explaining how he figured out some complex JavaScript compiler bug of the day. It always felt like we were on a mission to ship macOS together. What Apple did do back then was create these special versions of the OS that had a few hidden or secret products that Steve Jobs was going to demo, like iTunes or iPhoto. So, while I could install the latest internal developer build of the OS, it would have a feature or two missing. You would then get bug reports that mentioned the code name and explained a bug that you had to fix for the feature, but you had to fix the bug blinded and send the bug back to verify. Secrecy didn't really get in the way, and it made for an interesting culture. Then it all started to change when Forstall was promoted to VP of the iPhone effort. He took what was probably meant to be a short-term secret launch team culture and expanded it to create this massive secret island in the company. The program office, and by extension, the original founding engineers, were all promoted to management that expanded on the secret culture. I think that if management meant to open the culture back up to the same level as macOS in 2009, they would have been burned by Samsung and Palm Web OS making exact copies of the software coming out at the time. So the hyper-locked-down culture persisted, and Steve Jobs passed away, and Federighi was promoted to replace him, and merged both the macOS and iOS organizations, finally killing off any of the remaining openness that once existed. Then came all the ridiculous tools, such as checking someone's security clearance when you had a meeting with them. 